Um, yeah, so my name is Andy. I'm one of the small group leaders here. Uh, I have a wife, Steph. Um, we have a, a daughter. This is our first, mother, first Mother's Day together. Uh, we have a daughter, Ruby. Um, and if, I don't know, you, maybe you've seen Ruby. She's actually, uh, she's the cutest baby in this church. Um, <laughs> or depending on if you have a baby, maybe second cutest. But uh, no, like we took her to the doctor this week and he's like, I know babies. You're, you have a cute baby. And I'm like, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but anyway, I, I'm really excited to just have like the opportunity to preach the Word of God this morning, and like preaching on Sunday isn't something that I normally uh, I do or have done before, uh, so I'm like a little nervous, but I'm also just really looking forward to uh, to sharing how God has been transforming my heart, and yeah, just especially as like this this past few weeks in my preparation. So yeah, so we're uh, we're nearing the end of our study in uh, in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, and um, so what Jesus has been doing in this sermon uh, that we've seen is he's continually upending. Uh, the traditional understandings of what is to be pursued and valued. He's upending those things. He's flipping them on their head. Um, and we've seen that each week as he's talked about like how we practice our righteousness and how it's not for uh, just to impress others, but it's so that we could know God and love God and, um, and, and how we pray and how we can, how we can approach God. And um, yeah, and like the, the, the treasures that we pursue and, um, and the ways that like yeah, we just like see money and possessions and like the purpose of those things. And he's, so he's taken the, our understandings of those things and he's kind of flipped them on their head. And um, he's brought those things from like the context of the kingdom of the world to like the kingdom of the gospel and the kingdom of God. So uh, two weeks ago, Brandon talked about how like the way that we see God changes the way that we, we think about our own worldly needs and how uh, seeing God free, like correctly, uh, how that frees us up from anxiety. It frees us up from having to like worry about the future. Um, and then last week we looked at how the way we see ourselves changes the way that we see others and how uh, when we realize like the magnitude of our own sin and our own need for grace, like how that changes us and it, it frees us up to really care about others and it frees us up from judgment and those kind of things. So uh, yeah, this week we're going to continue kind of in that trend. We're going to continue where we left off in Matthew and, and look at like how the way that we see God changes the way that we relate to him and how it changes the way that we relate to others. So the way that we see God changes the way that we relate to him and how we relate to others. So let's pray. Um, yeah, God, I just, uh, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't say anything good without you saying it through me. And um, yeah, so I just like pray that you'd be saying uh, all the good things uh, this morning. And yeah, I just pray, like, uh, in my prep, if there's anything that, you know, that, like, I'm not saying that you want me to say, that, that those things would be said, and that I would skip over the things that you don't, that, that don't need to be heard. And yeah, I just, like, pray that your spirit would be here uh, in me and, um, yeah, in all of us, just uh, that you'd be working in our hearts this morning. So, amen. So, who we view God as matters. It changes the way that we relate to God and how we approach him. Uh, and it changes the way that we see other people around us and how we, how we relate to those people. So in this passage, we're going to look at like, how we are to view God and then how we are to approach God and then how our relationship with God changes the way that we relate to others. So uh, let's, let's read the passage. Starting in, uh, we're in Matthew 7, starting in verse 7. Um, yeah, so Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. 
for this sums up the law and the prophets. All right, so, uh, so how are we to view God? And I think, like, in order to understand, that's a really big, loaded question. So I think, like, in order to understand, like, what that means, like, what this passage means for us, I think we really need to understand what it means, what it meant for the original audience. Um, like, like, Scripture can't mean now what it never meant then. And so uh, I think we really need to just look at the context of who Jesus is talking to and really, like, how, what is he upending um, in, to, for them? Uh, so... Jesus is talking to his followers here. He's talking to people who have been like sitting under his teaching, and those people are primarily Jewish. They're Jews. Um, and so in order to understand like how Jesus is challenging our understanding of who God is, we need to look at how he's doing that for these like first century Jews. So how did the Jews of Jesus' day see God? And I think to understand that, we need like a little bit of a history lesson. Um, so bear with me for a second. So uh, the Jews were supposed to be a people that were set apart for God. God had chosen them, and the world was, uh, they were supposed to be like a light in a world of darkness. And like, the world was supposed to look at Israel and know that God was great. And God had rescued the Jews from, Israel, or from, from Egypt. Uh, he'd brought them into the promised land Israel, and he'd made them into a great nation. But these Jews that Jesus was talking to, like, and Israel, they weren't a great nation anymore. Uh, they had rejected God's leadership. They had decided they ought to rule themselves. They appointed their own kings. They started uh, worshiping other gods. And uh, they started oppressing their own people and ignoring like, the whole reason that they were chosen and created as a nation in the first place. Um, they, they took what God had given them and they had run it into the ground. So they now found themselves under Roman rule and oppression and they were once again longing to be rescued. It was like Egypt all over again. And when they were at their darkest, God had promised that he would rescue them again, but he hadn't come yet. And in fact, it had been 400 years since they'd heard anything. Like the last book in the Old Testament is Malachi, and then it's 400 years of silence. There's no prophets. God isn't talking to the nation of Israel. He's not correcting them. And they had to be thinking like, like has he given up on us? Like, has he forgotten us? Like, where is he? He said he was going to come, and now he's been silent. And it feels like we're at our darkest time again, and, and he's just nowhere to be found. So I think like the Jews felt like they were, they were once a people that were set apart for God, but now they were set apart from God. And to an extent, like, I think that was true. Like God was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in this special room that no one could go into, except for like the high priest on one day of the year when he was allowed to go in and make a sacrifice on behalf of the Jewish people to atone for their sins. And, and they... So I think like the Jews, they just saw God as like distant. They saw him as angry and they saw him as unapproachable. And I think like, I think that's really true for us too at times, right? Like I've known that that's really true in my heart at times. It's just like, yeah, like I know that those things aren't true, but it, it's like, but they feel true. Um, it, like it feels like God is far away or like he's given up on you. Um, like he's forgotten us or gone somewhere else or he doesn't care about our problems. Um, yeah, I just remember like, my, uh, my super senior year of college, I, I lived in Pickard Hall. And uh, my friend Dylan and I, we had moved there as upperclassmen and with the intention of starting a small group there, and we were really excited. Uh, Pickard Hall was really great if you hate air conditioning and you love freshmen and walking. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was the furthest hall from everything. There was nothing exciting about it. But, uh, and, and because nobody ever chose to live there, it was just like full of freshmen who had registered for school late. Um, but like... 
we felt called to those freshmen. Like, we were those freshmen once. I was that freshman who procrastinated. And, um, and I think, like, God loves those freshmen. And, and we felt like God was pursuing them and calling us there. And, and so we went and we embraced it. And, um, yeah, this was my third year uh, leading Bible studies on campus. And uh, two years earlier, my, my first year, uh, I, had, uh, I was leading a Bible study in, in Morrow Hall. And uh, I think that very first study, uh, there was, like, 30 people who showed up. Um, and I think, like, at least 25 of them were freshmen. It was crazy. Um, and not everyone got, got plugged in, but we ended up with a, a solid group of, like, maybe 15 people. And, and we were really good friends, and we grew really close, and we, we just had a, a lot of fun together that year, and we grew a lot together, and it was, it was a really great experience. And, uh, yeah, and the next year then, like, that first night, we had, I think we had, like, 15 or 20 people, and, and the group stayed about that size. We ended up actually having to, like, multiply the group because we, like, couldn't feasibly study anymore with a group that large. And... Um, <laughs> I think the introverts were dying inside. And, um, yeah, so, like, coming to this first night of small group, like, we were excited to see what was going to happen, what God was going to do. And, um, yeah, we'd worked really hard that week to, make, to, like, meet new people and to meet the people in our hall and to invite them to come to the study. And we, like, walked around each of the wings and were, uh, anybody who had an open door, it was like, hey, 7 o'clock, study room, you should come to our, our study. Like, we'd love to see you there. And, uh, yeah, so that night, like, Dylan and I, we go downstairs at 6.30 and we wait and uh, I think it was like three or four people showed up. And then the next week, that was about the same. And uh, in, the, in the weeks after that, it, it never really got any better. Um, and then it was like one night in October, uh, Dylan and I went downstairs for the study, and it was like, I think it was like 7.30 before I realized that no one was coming. Um, and that felt really terrible. It's like we'd, we'd made this decision to go here and be intentional and to, to be sacrificial in the way we were living. And... Um, yeah, I just remember, like, in the days after that, just, or the, in the, just the weeks um, of that, just like, felt God was really far away. Um, it felt like, like I knew in my head that that wasn't the case, but, like, it, in my heart, it just felt really true, and it felt hard to convince my heart that it wasn't true. And uh, it felt like God was, like, ignoring us, or was he, like, punishing us? Um, yeah, like, he'd, give us, he'd, like, given us this calling, and he'd sent us out, um, and then he'd forgotten about us. And, and I think we just, like, I felt really burned out, and I felt alone. So does that resonate with you guys? Like, there's just times where it feels like that's true. Like, God is really far away, or, like, he's gone somewhere else. Um, yeah, I think, like, I think that for the Jews, like, they felt really far from God. I think that would have resonated with them. Like, um, yeah, I think they felt forgotten. So in verse 7, when Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find knock and the door will be open to you. He's telling these Jews that God hasn't stopped listening. He hasn't given up on you and he hasn't, he's not ignoring you. He hasn't gone somewhere else. And these words that Jesus used here, they would have been familiar to them. Uh, they're actually like, it's really similar language to, uh, to uh, scripture that they knew that was in Jeremiah, um, in Jeremiah 29. And in Jeremiah, uh, uh, this, this prophet Jeremiah is relaying God's message to, uh, to Jews who uh, they had grown up in Jerusalem, but now they were living in exile under Babylonian rule. And it was like a really, really dark time in Jewish history. Um, in Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 11, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord and I will bring you back from captivity. 
So Jesus is reminding them that God is faithful. Like he's, he hasn't left you. He hasn't forgotten you. And he, he does what he says he's going to do. Like he keeps his promises. It's like life seems really hard right now. There's a lot of darkness and not a lot of light. And that's not how it was supposed to be. But like God hasn't changed. He hasn't left you. So like take hope because his plans for you haven't changed. So, uh, yeah, like the prophet Isaiah, he wrote to a a very similar group of people um, in a very similar context. uh, um, Yeah, in the Old Testament, he wrote uh, in Isaiah 49, he says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget you, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. And these are God's words that he's just relaying to the people. See, like God hasn't forgotten you. You've been engraved on his hands. You're like always in his sight and you're on his mind. So we can have confidence in God knowing that he, he hears us, like he isn't far away, regardless of how we're feeling, like he cares about us. See, like God is not a distant ruler who left, like he's a father who cares. And Jesus says this in, in verse 9, he says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or which, if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Like he's saying, God is a loving, generous dad. Like he's a king. Like he's king, but he wants you to know him as dad. Like, and this wouldn't have been like, this, I don't think this is new information for us. Like none of this is like have, have, are hearing this and it's like a completely foreign concept. Like, whoa. And I don't think like um, it would have, it would have been, similar to things that, uh, that these Jews knew. But the wording here that Jesus uses is unusual because the Old Testament refers to God as a father, but it's always, it's always like a father. It's always in the sense that it's like this concept or this metaphor, like he created us like a dad, um, or he watches over us like a dad watches over his kids. And like in Isaiah uh, 64, he says, yet you, Lord, are a father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. In Psalm 103, it says, like, as, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So it's like, they saw God like a father. Like, the whole idea of God and father, like, that was just a concept, an idea to them. And it was like this illustration to show them who God kind of was. But what Jesus is saying is that God isn't like a father. Like, he is a father. He's your father. Like, it's not just this way that we view God. It's this way that we relate to him and how that, and that changes things. Like, so how do we to approach God? Like we approach him as a dad. Like we can go to him like in, uh, in a few verses like ago, like Jesus was just like teaching them how to pray. And he says like, says this then is how you should pray. He says, our father, that's the first words. Like he's a dad, call him dad. Um, yeah, and to a first century Jew, I think like this was, this was incredible. Like this was, this was really new um, and really refreshing. Like, and for some of you, like maybe that isn't refreshing because like, the idea of a father maybe carries a lot of baggage to you. Like maybe you and your dad weren't that close or maybe your dad wasn't around that much or maybe your dad was just a prick. And like, yeah, and maybe you see God that way too. Because like, I think like the way that we see our earthly fathers, that affects the way that we see our heavenly father. But it doesn't change who God is. Like just because like we have this, this lens that we're viewing God through, like the lens doesn't actually change who God is. It just changes who we see him as. But Jesus is saying, like, you have a really good dad, and he loves his kids. And we can approach God knowing that he loves us. 
Like we, we can approach him knowing that he likes spending time with us. He actually likes to hear from us. Um, yeah, so who we pray to matters. And how you see God matters. It changes like the way that you relate to him. It changes like, the things that you ask for, and it changes just like everything about that relationship, right? If I'm honest, like I think the way that I view God a lot of the time isn't like a dad, it's like he's a boss. And that just seems like a way more natural way to see him. Um, yeah, I think like the Jews kind of saw God that way too. Like, like, so the Pharisees, right? Like they were all about impressing God. They were all about following the rules to a T. They were all about job title and security. They saw themselves as God's assistants and they made it like their job to keep people in line and to weed out the underperformers. And like to them, like God was just the boss and they were the middle manager. Um, yeah, and I think like the problem with viewing God as a boss is like, it's like I need to impress God then. And if I can't, then I need to avoid God, right? So in order for God to be happy with me, like I need to be a good worker. I need to add value to his kingdom. Like I need to, he needs to have ROI on his investment in me. I need to have all the right answers and I need to be fruitful. It's like God has this agenda and I need to get on board or get out. It's like through those things, then I will earn his favor. Like he will think that I'm a good worker or a good employee or whatever. But then like when I'm not, when I screw up, then I need to hide it. Uh, I need to avoid God. I need to fix that thing on my own before I bring it back to him or I need to blame it on somebody else. Um, Yeah, and I think like viewing God that way, like it just really leads to burnout. Like you just feel really, like it's just really exhausting to view God that way and to view your faith that way and to view the gospel that way. Like it's like the success and the failure of the mission is relying all on you and everything is on your shoulders. It's like your faith becomes a job and Jesus becomes a burden. I remember uh, back in, uh, like, it was, I think, the summer of 2010, I was uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is a really far away place that I don't recommend visiting. Um, but uh, I was at, like, this month-long uh, InterVarsity leadership training program thing uh, at this camp, and I'd been a Christian for, like, a year at that point. I feel like I'd grown a ton, but, like, the last few months, it had felt like I'd kind of hit a wall. Like, when I first got involved with, with InterVarsity that fall, um, felt like I needed to get as plugged in as possible. And so for those 10 months, I said yes to everything, and I did everything. Um, like, I did everything there was to do, and I just, yeah, I just kept going to everything. And, but, like, when the summer hit and uh, my community, like, went home for the summer, uh, it was like I felt like I was alone, and I was kind of, like, left to fend for myself. Um, yeah, and I think I was struggling, like, because it felt like like the shine of Jesus had kind of worn off, like, Like a year earlier, I was on fire for God and my life was being radically transformed and turned upside down and it was amazing. But now I just kind of felt tired. I felt burned out and it felt like being a Christian was kind of a burden that I had to carry at that point and felt like God was just really distant. He was far away. Like he'd he'd come into my life and um, he'd, he'd set me up with he get uh, I don't know. He got me up to up to speed with my job, and then uh, he went to go work on something else. That's, that's just kind of what I felt like. So I think it was like the third weekend. We uh, it's like every Sunday we do this thing called a retreat of silence, which is where you like go into the woods and spend four hours with God with no phone. It was just like four hours of silent, quiet time, and it was terrible. Like I hated it. Um, <laughs> some people loved it, uh, but I oh man like. I was like half an hour and I was like, what are we, what are we doing? Like, um, 
Yeah, so I, I think I decided that day I was going to just finish early and decided to go head back over to like, the common area to see if I could find like, some human interaction. Um, yeah, and everyone, but I got over there and everyone was like, still quiet in their own little world. And, uh, except there was this like, one guy sitting by the door. Uh, his name was Ram, and he was like, the new speaker that week. Um, Ram was just this really like, fun guy. He was just like this, uh, like, this kind of eccentric, like, really easy to talk to, like, flamboyant, like, little pudgy Indian man. Um, yeah, and so we started making small talk, and he was asking me about, like, what I'd been learning the past few weeks, and he, I think we talked about, like, our families, and uh, he knew a couple of Platteville students, and he was asking about them. I th- actually, it might have been Ryan and Becca, because you guys had just started dating, and he was like, oh, how's that going? Um, yeah, but at the end of our talk, like, he asked me if he could, uh, if he could pray for me, and I was like, all right, I, I'm not going to say no, because I think that's weird, but this is also weird. Um, yeah, and so like, as he prayed for me, it was like unlike anything that I'd ever encountered before. Uh, it was like he would pray like quietly to God, and I couldn't like make out what he was saying. But then he would pray out loud for me, so it was like he was asking God what to say, and then he would say it. And it was very odd. Like I've still never encountered anything like that. Um, but like when we at the end, like he he said to me, he's like, "This is going to sound weird, but like it felt like God was like showing me this vision or like something of you." And I don't it doesn't make any sense. I just saw, like, you and God are playing catch with a baseball and glove, and God just wants you to know that he's content to play catch with you as long as, he want, as long as you want to. And he seemed confused, like he didn't know what any of that meant, and I was kind of confused because I didn't totally get it either. Um, but it was, like, 10 minutes later, I think I was walking back to my cabin, and it, like, hit me, like, just like this wave. Um, it was, like, growing up, like, my dad had a really bad back. Uh, he had worked at Culligan Water for, like, 20 years, and I think he had, like, a slip disc or something. And so... Like, I loved going outside and playing catch with him, but, like, we could only go for, like, 20 minutes before his back would start hurting and we'd have to go inside. And, like, like I love playing catch. I think that I, just a few months earlier from that conversation with Ram, I had uh, asked just for a baseball glove for my birthday, and that was all I got for my birthday because I just wanted to play catch with my roommate that summer, and that's just something I love doing. And, yeah, so me and my dad, we would just, like, we'd play catch, but then I'd, you know, his back would start hurting, and I'd get bummed, and we'd have to go inside. And... I just remember, like, my best friend Riley, he lived across the street from us. Um, and I remember, like, watching him and his dad, they would go out after dinner and play catch. And they would just play until, like, it got dark out and they couldn't see anymore. And there was, like, this weird memory that, like, I hadn't thought about in 10 years. It was just, like, this fleeting childhood memory that, like, you didn't even realize was still in your, in your brain. But, like, uh, I just remember thinking that, like, I just remember, like, watching him and thinking, like, oh, man. I just, like, wish my dad was like that. Like, I wish I could play catch with my dad. And I don't think I was, like, harboring these, like, deep childhood issues, like, father issues that, like, had, were completely affecting every area of my life or anything. But, yeah, I just remember feeling kind of jealous. And I remember, like, yeah, just, like, having, like, this, uh, this hope that, like, when I grew up one day, like, I wanted to make sure that I was in good shape and I didn't have back issues so that way I could play catch with my kids for as long as I wanted to. Yeah, and like I didn't remember any of that, and then after, after Ram had shared that with me, it was just like that all came rushing back, and it was like God was telling me, like, he wants to be the perfect father for me that I want to be for my kids. Yeah, and like now that I'm a dad, like that means so much more. Um, Ruby's terrible at catch right now, but, <laughs> but I love spending time with her. Like, uh, Steph sends me pictures and videos and really creepy Snapchats of her, like while I'm at work, but like, and then I just want to go home and spend time with her. Like, I just want to see her. And, like, she can't even talk yet, but I think she's so interesting. And I love watching her grow, and I love watching her experience new things. Like, I asked Steph, like, once a week if we can have her try ice cream, and she always says, no, we're not doing that. Um, 
I can't wait till Ruby is old enough that I can like start taking her out on daddy-daughter dates, though. And like, man, I just love that girl. And like, she's given me no reason to like love her objectively, other than she's objectively cute. But yeah, but like, yeah, it's just like completely changed. Yeah, like the way I, I see Ruby and the way I relate to Ruby is is very different than just like Ruby's my employee and I'm her boss or something like that. And even talking, saying that out loud sounds ridiculous. So in like in Jesus, then like we are giving given a new way of relating to God. So we are sinners who have run our relationship with God into the ground. Like we've rebelled against God time and time again, and we've run away from Him. It's like we've separated ourselves from our Father, and are in desperate need of rescuing. Ephesians two, uh, Paul puts it this way: He says, "Remember that at that time when you were separate from Christ." excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Saying like you were once far off, but like Jesus has made a way back. He's made a way back for us. Like he's not just made us right with the king, but he's made us a part of his family. And that's very different. It's like we were once rebels, but because of Jesus, like, we're now children. And that's, that's just a complete transformation. So it's like God is inviting us into a relationship with himself to know this good and generous father in heaven who loves us and wants to give us good gifts. He wants to give us himself. He wants to give us his kingdom. He wants to give us his mission and a purpose. And as kids, like, we're free to approach God and ask him for those things. And like, we can ask him for the desires of our heart. And he won't always say yes, of course, because like, no good father or no good parent says yes to everything that their kids ask for because half the time it's a terrible thing that it's going to hurt them and lead to crying and disaster. But, like, but it's okay to ask God for good things. Like, Steph and I have been asking God a lot lately to provide us a house. And I think, like, yeah, it's like we have good reasons for that. Like, we want to be able to have other families over for dinner and we want to be able to be intentional with my coworkers and... Uh, we want to be able to love and serve people by throwing good parties and, uh, and just like creating good community. And we want to be able to host a small group. And I think those are all really good reasons. Um, but it's like we'd also just really like to have a house. Like that'd just be really nice to have a place of our own. And it'd be really nice to not have to walk up like three flights of stairs with like a baby in a car seat and groceries. Like that'd be really cool. Um, yeah, so I think it's like okay to ask God for those things because like he doesn't just like work in the ways that like it benefits his kingdom as a business or whatever. It's not like he only invests things that he knows like have the, the best returns on them. Like, like he loves us as his own kids and he's, he's not just concerned about like kingdom equity or whatever. All right, so verse 12 we get to, which is like, I think is like one of the most like misunderstood, but also like one of the, I don't know, just one of those verses that everyone has heard, you know, it's the golden rule. It says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Again, like the golden rule, this is decreed in many religions. This is a thing, like, I think it's like Buddhism and Hinduism. Like, they all say that, right? And like, and Jews and Christians agree with that alike. Um, I don't think that's anything new that Jesus is saying. And he probably wasn't even the first to say it. But I think it's still one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood verses in all of scripture. Like, it's more than just be nice to each other, right? Like, and what it's not saying is it's not saying do to others so that they would do the same to you. It's like the point of the golden rule is not to just put something in so that you can get something out. And I think that's like the way that I'm most 
like prone to seeing it is just like, I should treat others well so that they'll treat me well. Like, yeah. And it's also not saying like, don't do to others what you wouldn't have them do to you, which I think is also like a, a way that we're prone to seeing is like, just like, don't be a jerk to people because you don't want people to be a jerk to you. And it's like, it's not this, this, this verse isn't about avoiding sin. Like Jesus isn't talking about just being nice to each other and just, uh, yeah, just avoiding acting like a jerk. But like, you shouldn't act like a jerk. Um, yeah, but like what he's saying here is like the way that we relate to God changes the way that we relate to others. Like it's important that we understand why this verse comes after these ones we just talked about. See, like knowing God as a good and loving dad who we can go to, like it affects the way that we see others. Like that relationship changes our other relationships. Um, yeah, like in, uh, in his book, uh, Searching for God Knows What, like uh, yeah, this author, like he lays out uh, this idea he calls the lifeboat theory, and I love it. Um, he tells this story about this time in elementary school when his teacher asked his class a question. And the question was, if there were a lifeboat adrift at sea and in the lifeboat were a male lawyer, a female doctor, a crippled child, a stay-at-home mom, and a garbage man, and one person had to be thrown overboard to save the others, which person would we choose? I think he said he, like, he didn't remember who they chose. I think he thought it was like maybe the lawyer, but he didn't really understand or he didn't remember the reasons why. But remember that they were just like very quick to assign value to each of these people. Um, yeah, and he just said like the question had always stuck in his mind because he wondered what it would feel like to uh, explain to everybody else in the lifeboat like why you shouldn't be thrown overboard. And he said he wondered that because he, he felt like maybe those emotions that you'd feel making that case for your life in the lifeboat, like if that was anything like the feelings that we all feel just like when we're living our lives, just hanging out at the house or going to the grocery store. Like we're stranded in a lifeboat and we're all just like living our lives in a way like we're scared of being killed. And like as morbid as that sounds, like I totally get that, right? Like, like we all have these desires, like we want to be good people and we want to make a difference in the world and we want to be important to the people around us. And uh, yeah, like we want to feel loved and respected and if those things don't happen, it feels like something terrible is going to happen to us. Like, so we have this like, deep-seated insecurity. It's like knowing that our place in the lifeboat is at risk. Yeah. So like when someone disrespects us, we get angry because it feels like someone is saying that we don't have value. Or like when somebody's mean to us, it hurts because it feels like they're taking our worth away. And when we're selfless and generous towards others, it's because it supports our agenda or we're hoping that others will notice and take note when the time comes to consider our value. And we, uh, we like to associate ourselves with good people and dissociate ourselves from bad people because, like, we want to be the winner. And in the lifeboat, associating yourselves with the losers, like, it costs you your life. So, yeah. And, like, when things go wrong, we're quick, we're quick to, to blame others because it feels like it gives us a piece of security. Like, it's like as long as it's not me, you know, if it takes the target off my back and puts it onto somebody else. I think those are all survivor terms, too, actually. Um, yeah, it's like this lifeboat mentality causes us to see others through a lens of competition and fear. It's like we end up using people for our own purposes. We build people up when it helps our case, but then we tear people down in order to maintain our place. I think for me, like, being right is how I try to earn my spot, like my own rightness. Um, and I think it manifests itself in, like, sometimes just, like, petty and obnoxious ways, and I think, like, other times it's, like, really hurtful ways. Um, it's like, 
when we're in a group and like somebody is, is sharing something that they saw in the news, but they get like a detail wrong, it's like I feel this need to like jump in and correct them as though like that detail really mattered. And it was like important to keep the group together because that detail would have torn us apart or something. <laughs> it's like, so I interrupt them and, and correct it. And it's like, we're, or I'm talking about like sports with friends and, and somebody will say something that I disagree with and I'll sharply retaliate with my more educated and more well thought out opinion because they need to know, right? Like they need to know that I'm right. I feel like being right is like this imperative for me to have value. Because if, if I'm wrong, then I'm an idiot and I'm a loser and I'll be thrown out of the lifeboat. I don't think like any of us think those things like consciously, but I think that like it does feel like that's kind of, it's kind of similar to like the motives that we have in those situations. Like when I trample over like people in conversations or cut them down for the sake of my own rightness, like it's hurtful and it, it kills those relationships. Like it makes those people really uncomfortable and it drives them away. But what Jesus is saying here is like, when you know God as a dad who loves you, when you trust that he hasn't forgotten you, when you see that he's generous and he cares about you, like it changes the way that you relate to others. Like it changes the way that you see people and it changes the way that you interact with them. Like we aren't stranded in a lifeboat in need of saving because we've already been given a savior. We aren't competing for a spot in the lifeboat. We're not competing for a spot in God's company. We're not, our value and our worth aren't determined by other people. Like, they're determined by God. Like, when God looks at you, he sees you like he sees his son, Jesus. He loves you. Like, he loves you like he loves Jesus. He loves Jesus unfathomably. Like, he looks at him, he says, like, I am perfectly pleased with you. He approves of you completely. He declares you as beautiful and righteous and blameless and worthy. Like, he sees you as having immeasurable worth. And it's not because you deserved it or because you made a good enough case. Like, it's just because of what Jesus has done. Like, we're f- when, when we understand that, it's like we're free to love others genuinely and not just for our own selfish gain. Like, we can love and respect people who are different from us because our value and our worth aren't dependent on who we associate ourselves with. And loving somebody doesn't mean having to agree with them or having to associate yourself with them. Like, we can serve others without having to expect something in return. We don't need to avoid others or be scared of what they're going to think of us because, like, we, don't, we know that like, we're loved and approved of already. We're not, we don't need that from them. And so that's not why we come to them in the first place. And we can be open to others about our sin and our struggles because that's already been paid for on the cross. And it's not going to cost us our life. Like we've already been given a new permanent life. So I think like we can actually like, it's like unless we see God for who he actually is and not just like through this weird like lifeboat mentality, it's like, we can never love our enemies like scripture tells us to. Like we can never consider others to be more important than us. Because like God, the creator of everything, like he's looked at us and he's declared that we are of a measurable value and worth. And so that frees us up to love people like who don't like us or love people when they're mean to us or love people like when it's really, really hard to love people. Yeah, like the, see like the way that we see God changes the way that we relate to him and how we relate to others. We were once separated from God without hope and in desperate need of rescuing. We were once far away from God, but through Jesus we've been brought near. We've been given a new way of relating to God, not as a distant, unapproachable ruler who left his throne, but as a good and generous dad who loves his kids. And so we can love each other because we've been loved. We can show each other grace because we've been shown much grace. 
We can be generous towards others because we've experienced immense generosity from our good Father in heaven. Yeah, let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, like, thank you for, yeah, like, thank you that uh, we don't need to earn our spot in your kingdom. Thank you that we don't need to impress you or make a good enough case to, uh, to earn what you've done for us. Like, yeah, God, I just, like, I thank you that you're not just like a dad, but that you are our dad, and that you don't just make us like your kids, but you actually adopt us and make us your kids. Yeah, I just, like, pray that, like, that, those truths would really just, like, sink into our hearts, like, right now in this week, that, like, yeah, that we would really not just like see you as a dad, but that we would know you as a dad and that that would change the way that we, yeah, that we do everything, that that would change the, the things that we pursue and the, the way that we interact with others and like, yeah, that you would just like enable us to really love people in ways that we're incapable of loving people. So, yeah, I just like, uh, just pray that you'd like help us to, to love you and to love each other well. Amen.